Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining uh, our PIN conversation, part two today. Uh, I have the distinct pleasure of having Professor Jerry Haas, who is a Nancy Schlegel Meiling Professor Emeritus of Maternal and Child Nutrition in DNS here at Cornell with us today. Uh, he was trained as a biological anthropologist at Penn State University and before joining the Cornell faculty ranks, and is well known for his work on the functional consequences of iron deficiency on physical and cognitive performance. He has also led several trials with food-based interventions around the world, including with biofortified crops in India, Philippines, Mexico, and Rwanda. He's also served as vice president and president of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists and on the expert advisory panel for nutrition of the World Health Organization and the technical advisory group on food and nutrition of the Pan-American Health Organization. He also was DNSS director from 1998 to 2003. Among many other roles, I am very privileged to count him both as a friend and a mentor and someone who introduced me to the world of biofortified crops and uh, Again, very honored and very happy to have you here today, Jerry. Uh, as I mentioned before, I think what we are doing is we are reflecting on the 60 years of the program in international nutrition and also trying to figure out what the relevance of programs like this is in the future. So as part of that series, we are having these conversations. We have split this into two parts. So the first part, it's going to be a conversation with me, which is probably drier, but then the second conversation is going to be with trainees, which is going to be hopefully more fun. And what we are curious is about you know listening about your experiences and maybe starting maybe with what was your inspiration to work internationally? How did you get involved with international work? Well, that's an interesting question because when I uh, finished my undergraduate work, I had never left the United States. I mean, I in fact, I'd never left, well, except for the proverbial road trip to the West Coast during my junior year in college. I'd never really left much of the Northeast United States. But then I had an opportunity in graduate school to go to what was then a, a, the rising star among physical anthropology graduate programs in, at Penn State University, working with Paul Baker, who was the uh, uh, director of a large project in Peru. And of course, in anthropology, I was trained basically to be an evolutionary biologist. And my interest was in how people adapted, which is why I chose to work with Paul Baker. He was looking at opportunities to look at how natural selection as a biological process actually can be applied to looking at humans. And remember, this is pre-genomic era. So what we know today about this problem is phenomenal because of the genome. But in those days, we had relatively little technology to rely on. And Baker had carved out a project in Peru to look at how indigenous populations in the Andes that had lived there for over 10,000 years had adapted to this rather unique environment and whether natural selection could explain it. So obviously the question then is uh, how do you study this? And Baker's philosophy was you've got to go into the field. You have to study this in situ, in the place where it was happening. So he always mounted a group of students, graduate students, about every other year to go into a, a community in the highlands of Peru that he had established a research site over the past years. And uh, in 1969, I had that opportunity. So that's how I got to study internationally. The first time I ever was on an airplane. And it was, uh, it was quite an eye-opening experience. All my graduate student colleagues who had been there before had 
tried to prepare me for this and I'd seen plenty of slides and lots of discussions, but nothing like the actual event. And we arrived in Peru and we ended up working in a small community, a rural community in Southern Peru at about 14,000 feet of sea level. And uh, this was a rural community, impoverished, very low resource. And we we're supposed to be studying high altitude stress. How does the hypoxia of extreme high altitude affect your ability to live in this environment? But what became very apparent to me in the beginning, but even reinforced as I made multiple trips back to this environment, is that it's not just the hypoxia of high altitude that's a problem for these people. It's really the living conditions that are contributing to malnutrition, uh, higher infectious disease load, very heavy workloads, isolation. Plus, this is a cold environment, a very dry environment, limited resources for growing food. So this is a really a stressful place. And uh, even though the stresses I studied were, were related to hypoxia, it really led me down another path, which was to look at how populations living in, in very low resource settings can actually survive and what can be done to make their life better. So that was my first experience. And uh, it was, like I said, an eye-opener, but uh, it was inspiring in a lot of ways. And one of the first things that became very apparent to me was you've got to be sensitive. You've got to be culturally sensitive to this people who you're studying, the people that you're working with. You have to be collaborative with your own uh, research team and other people who are going to be there to help you. And I found for field work, especially, you had to be very adaptable. I mean, I was studying adaptation of the subjects of our studies, but the adaptation of the investigators was something else that you could not overlook. You had to be adaptable because things never play out the way you propose or the way you think they're going to play out. And you need that, that exposure to make you think about how can you do this in another way that doesn't compromise the quality of the work that you're doing, but also doesn't compromise the integrity of the population that you're studying. Those are the big lessons that I learned from that first field experience. Wonderful. Um, I was going to also then pivot to that. How did how did that pivot to nutrition? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Well, like I said, when we got to the Highland community, and uh, it was pretty clear after a very short period of time, my, my main goal there was to study growth and development in children as part of the research team that was studying other aspects of adaptation. How do people work physically? How do they adapt to the cold environment? Uh, how do they respond to infectious disease loads? Well, my part that I carved out was how do children grow and develop in this stressful environment? So again, you know, how do we measure nutritional status in developing countries? We look the heights and weights of children. And that's what I was doing, but not recognizing it as a nutrition issue as much as how does hypoxia affect it. But it became pretty clear after, actually after I did my dissertation research when I returned to Peru in 1971 for about 10 months, that it's studying growth and development in very young children uh, from newborns up to about uh, two and a half years, that altitude was a big problem, but uh, hypoxia, but it was not the problem. The problem was malnutrition. With nutrition, the food supply, and to some degree infectious diseases, although one thing about high altitude environment is a fairly sterile environment. So the disease loads were, were, or the burden was fairly limited to certain pathogens, but it was the nutritional 
factors that really led me to think about how else can I look at this population other than just responding to hypoxia. And then, of course, I moved to Cornell in 1975 after spending two years at the University of Massachusetts on the anthropology faculty. But here I was recruited into a, a nutrition faculty at Cornell. And I remember talking to Mal Nesheim, who you interviewed a couple of weeks ago. I said, what in the world do you want with an anthropologist in the nutrition department? And he made it pretty clear that it wasn't my knowledge of nutrition that, that meant anything in particular to hiring me. It was my experience working in growth and development in children. So then uh, once I was here, I was continuing to work in high altitude research, moved more to, towards pregnancy. It seemed it's interesting. My master's work was looking at adolescence. And I said, yeah, the problem doesn't start at adolescence. The problem starts in infancy and childhood. So I studied infancy and childhood during my PhD research. And I thought, you know, the problem doesn't start with infancy and childhood. It starts in utero. And then, then I moved on to working in a project with effects of altitude on pregnancy in Bolivia. And at that time, I was continually thinking about, well, where does nutrition fit into this? And, uh, you know, when you're at high altitude, there are a lot of ways you adapt. And one of the ways is you increase your red blood cell mass. And what's the cost of that? Well, the cost is, to a certain degree, is nutritional. And the limiting nutrient should be iron. So that moved me from high altitude hypoxia to iron, which I then worked for the next 40 years trying to understand not only the biology of iron, but how does iron affect your ability to function and, or limitations of iron affect your ability to adapt and work under different conditions. This means physical work as well as cognitive function. So that's how I got into nutrition was trying to figure out if I'm going to get tenure at Cornell, as an assistant professor in the nutrition department, I better start thinking about how nutrition fits into my research program. And that's where it fit. So was a project in Bolivia the, the first project that you did as a faculty member? In that's right. That's right. And I had an NSF grant to uh, study this problem. Uh, I wrote it when I was on the faculty at the University of Massachusetts, but there are limitations to being able to do the research out of UMass and Cornell provided me with no barriers to doing that research. I mean, I remember asking Mal, I said, look, uh, uh, you've got people in this building that have their laboratory right down the hallway. My laboratory is 6,000 miles away. Are you, how am I going to manage that? And with my teaching responsibility and so on, he said, don't worry about it. We hired you to do field work. That was my first grant at Cornell was through that NSF project. So speaking of limitations, are there any particular challenges that come to mind in establishing a program, a research program focused on international nutrition? Any highlights, lowlights? <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of highlights. I mean, if you think about uh, all of us who've done some field work, like I said, first of all, you the best laid plans of mice and men never, never seem to work out, do they? You always have some challenges once you get into the field. And you just have you can try and lay out option A, option B, option C, but then there's always something that interferes with even implementing those options. So I think the biggest challenges was being prepared for the, on, the unforeseen and still being able to carry out the research in a way that, that uh, uh, doesn't compromise the quality. Of course, a lot of that is uh, prevented with good collaborators and people who have actually provide you with the insight and the information on how to implement the work in a particular place. And this was collaborators at Cornell and as well as 
collaborators in the sites where I was working. Those are some of the challenges that uh, I thought found initially. But of course, trained in an anthropology department, and I did both my undergraduate and my graduate degrees in anthropology. This was a, we were reinforced with this all the time. Anthropologists are supposed to go into the field and they're supposed to set up research projects in a way that, well, in some cases, uh, not so much in others, collaborative with, uh, with uh, institutions in the places where you're working and it's institutions and individuals. So that was something that was impressed upon me early on and I hope carried me through the rest of my career. As we are thinking about, you know, the history of um, the program and also your own research, any particular successes of PIN or, or your own or the most impactful pieces of your program that come to mind? Oh, within PIN, you mean? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, when I was hired in 1975, PIN was really in its infancy. And I think uh, you're doing the great service by looking at the history over the past 60 years. But 1975, we really had only three faculty members in the division who were part of PIN, as we called it then, and we still do. That was Michael Lathan, who was a director, uh, Lonnie Stevenson, and Diva Sanhur. And the three of them were working in, uh, well, Michael Latham and Lonnie were working in East Africa, and Diva was working in Latin America. And that was pretty much the extent of the faculty. So here I, I arrived not as a nutritionist, but having worked in Latin America, and I brought in a different discipline. And I think that reinforced the need for this program to be multidisciplinary. Now we may all carry this title of nutrition or nutritional scientist, but nutritional scientist means what? It, it means that you look at nutrition problems from different number of different points of view. And I looked at it from a particular point of view as an evolutionary biologist, with some interest in public health. Uh, Michael and Lonnie were both much more interested in infectious disease and in East Africa, and Dee was looking at you know, dietary food habits in Latin America. But when I was hired, we also hired an economist, Peter Timmer, who was a food economist and added yet another dimension to the multidisciplinarity of the program. Now, unfortunately, Peter only lasted two years, but then we brought in Eric Thorbeck to replace him as a Babcock chair. And he was also, of course, working internationally, mostly in Asia. But so I think when I came, it started to take this multidisciplinary approach. And then the major uh, change in the faculty came in the late 70s when Jean Pierre Hopper left. And uh, Jean Pierre's contributions are just immeasurable. But that reinforced the need for, in this case, looking at really high quality epidemiology, as well as a, a rather unique experience uh, that he brought in terms of his experiences in, at INCAP in Latin America. And then uh, he also started a major program, the Cornell Food and Nutrition Policy Program, which was initially the Cornell Nutrition Surveillance Program, where he then brought in John Mason. Then later on in that program, uh, Pear Pinscher-Banderson. And then after that, David Sond. Uh, but through that program, we also brought in David Pelletier. And this is all in the 80s. The program was just mushrooming. It was just, we had graduate students. I think we must have about 30 PIN graduate students at one time in the 80s. We had funding, which was mostly coming from USAID and the World Bank, but from other research projects as well. We had uh, some really good graduate students who went on to do wonderful things. 
So I think that was just kind of the trajectory after I arrived. And I'm not saying I had very much to do with it. I added one piece to the multidisciplinarity of it, but it continued on with that trend and, and uh, to the program that we saw in the 80s and the 90s. Well, thank you. And that's that's always uh, amazing to hear the amount of impact that you guys as a co-nucleus and how much impact you had, particularly in terms of training people and establishing some of the methods that we still use across the field in international nutrition. I will end with just one question. How do programs like PIN stay relevant? Any advice for us as a program? That's a great question. I wish I had a crystal ball so I could tell you exactly where I, you should be going. It's been, you know, I've been out for seven years since I retired and I've had maintained a little bit of activity, but it's in a very narrow sphere of international nutrition, as you mentioned, working with testing uh, biofortified crops and the efficacy and so on. But I think the, uh, the emphasis on policy and, uh, through effective and scientifically valid, validating programs is really where we should be. But to do that, you still need to have people in the field. People still have to do field work to test the efficacy and effectiveness of interventions, developing new interventions that are innovative, uh, using new technologies, I think is, uh, is going to be important. Uh, the technology sphere is changing so rapidly that we ought to be able to take advantage of that, even though we're working at the rural village level for that. The emphasis should still be on sending students into the field, having our research programs focused in the field with local collaborators, but uh, recognizing that the uh, technology that is becoming available ought to be harnessed in some way to do that. So that's one thing I think we should be looking at. The problems are not much different than they were some time ago. I mean, it's still basically a matter of access and availability of food to the very poor and uh, how to improve the quality of the food supply and make it more accessible. And as long as we keep that as a focus, I think we're going to be, uh, we're going to be in the right track. But justifying that in, in an era where other things are also pressing, uh, like infectious diseases uh, in developing countries, we have to always be able to push to what is the important nutrition component to understanding the other health and problems that you find in a global perspective. Keeping nutrition as an important element of development, for instance. And that's, that's done in the bigger sense with the, you know, the development goals and so on. But implementing it in the field is another thing. And you know, funding agencies, people who fund our research and fund our training, have to be continually impressed with the importance that nutrition has in achieving those bigger goals. So I think as long as we can do that, as long as we bring in people, graduate students who have had the experience, uh, perhaps in some of these agencies that are working abroad and training them to go back into their, uh, into their uh, respective uh, agencies or environments uh, or other international agencies to make an impact. That's my vision, I guess it is, of where we should be going. Thank you so much, Jerry. I'll pass it on to Elizabeth and Nidhi. Thank you, Sarah. Hi, everyone. This is Nidhi, and thank you so much for tuning in to the part one of our conversation series with Dr. Jerry Haas. For more, please tune into part two with Elizabeth and me. Thank you.